0: Welcome to Medicus, a podcast made by students about everything in the world of medicine. Welcome back to Medicus. This is Nate, and I'm here with Dr. Carrie Reynolds from the podcast Hippocratic Hustle. We're so glad to have you on.
1: Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me.
0: I've been listening to your podcast for a while now actually just before this I was looking at my podcast app to see how many I listened to and I'd actually listened to about 30 at this point so I was like surprised myself wow that's like 30 hours of podcast that I've listened to from you
1: oh my gosh yeah thank you so much that's amazing that is a lot of podcasts good job
0: <laughs> you know we've got a long commute we got a long commute yeah but would you mind maybe just introducing yourself a little bit and giving us a brief intro to your podcast and what it's about
1: Yeah, sure. Well, like you said, I'm Carrie Reynolds, and I'm a physician. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, and I live in Denver, Colorado, but I've been practicing for the past two years doing locum tenens, traveling around, and I know we're going to talk about that in this episode, so I'll save the details for later. But yeah, about two and a half years ago, I started a podcast called The Hippocratic Hustle, and it's a podcast for women physicians. And basically, it's a podcast where the the demographic that I'm really speaking to is the women physicians of the world. (laughs) But um, our our focus of the podcast is to help people find freedom in life, work, and finances. So overall, I have a lot of interviews. of women and a few men too, because I'm diversifying a little bit of people who are doing really interesting things with their medical career. So whether that be something as relatively normal as like medical missions to creating a scrub company or a lingerie company or deodorant or, you know, running a blog or a podcast or, you know, all sorts of creative things that we do in and outside of medicine, I really like to highlight and feature.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of it. I've listened to several of your episodes. I know ones that I definitely listened to first that kind of drew me in were episodes you did about contract negotiation. Oh yeah, those are some of the first ones because I think there's kind of this mystery of how do physicians get jobs. And I think when you're a trainee like myself, it's kind of a little bit scary in a certain sense. And I think just like having people talk about it out loud, it was so nice.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And actually, one of my favorite episodes recently is the episode I did all about lawsuits and being, you know, subject of a medical lawsuit. And that was a really, really candid interview where the physician that I interviewed, she talked all about how she was uh, sued in a medical malpractice lawsuit and about how she became that and everything. So. Yeah, I think those two topics are probably some of the scariest things, getting a job and keeping your job right
0: Yeah, (laughs) as a physician. (laughs) So I just looked it up, Stacia Dearman. Is that right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, she's amazing. And um, that was one of my favorite episodes recently. It was really heartwarming to hear her story. And it's a fear that I have and a lot of physicians who are working. I don't know if medical students have that fear yet. Maybe I don't know. I mean, you might need to be out uh, in practice for a little bit before you realize that that's a possibility, yeah. but but it's a scary thing. And and it's really fun to be able to talk to my guests so candidly about it and to bring out all those things that we don't talk about enough out into the forefront of our conversation.
0: Oh, absolutely. I listened to that episode as well. That was a great episode. Something I've realized about podcasts in general is that it's something I kind of call the teen drama effect. If you have a piece of media and it's about high school students. The audience is often middle schoolers, if that makes any sense, and like high schoolers love listening to things about college or about adults because they want to be adults. And I feel like as medical students, we love listening to things like that, even though it's not exactly as applicable to us right now because it's like what we want to be, if that makes any sense.
1: It totally does because, I mean, obviously you want to know what you're headed for and you want to know what to expect and you have so many questions about that. And sometimes you don't even know what questions you have. Until you watch something like this and then you're like, oh, right, that's a thing. Yeah. I used to watch The Real World when I was in high school, probably for the same reasons. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You don't want to listen to something about yourself. You know what I mean? You want to listen to something that's about what you want to be. What is it that inspired you to actually start the podcast? I assume you must have been listening to podcasts for a long time. What drew you to actually do it?
1: Yeah, I've been listening to podcasts since about 2005, I think, before iTunes. So (laughs) I remember when iTunes came out and that was a big deal because it made it a lot easier to listen to podcasts. They've been around for a long time. So anyway, yeah, I've been a lifelong, almost lifelong listener to podcasts. And it's always been something that's been in my background when I've been doing laundry or cleaning my house or exercise or whatever. So I just love listening to all the stories and ideas that are out there. So I was part of some Facebook groups back when I was a fellow And when I was a fellow going into the real world, like getting ready to graduate, probably just like you mentioned, I didn't know how it was going to be in the real world, leaving academic medicine, like practicing as an attending, like all that stuff was really scary. And when you're a medical student or a resident or anything, you feel like you are the lowest of the low, right? It doesn't matter what stage you're at. You know, when you're pre-med, you're like you're low because you're not a medical student yet. And when you're a medical student, you're low because you're not a resident yet. And when you're resident, you're low because you're not in attending yet. And you just don't feel very confident in your skin. You don't feel very accepted, kind of. So when I was about that stage in my life, just finishing my fellowship, I became a part of a Facebook group called Physician Moms Group. And that was a wonderful Facebook group that really allowed women to get together and to talk candidly about the problems that they were going through. And I realized that the women who were posting on there, they were attendings, and they were going through the same things I was as a fellow. They had the same fears, the same anxieties. I really realized from that that we're not alone in medicine and that there's a whole group of people who feel exactly the same way that you do. Well, I followed that Facebook group for a while, and I thought, gosh, it would be awesome if this group had a podcast. Like, I want to hear those stories. And a couple of times, there have been... Uh, situations where someone was typing their explanation to a question. I remember one example was there was a woman, who she had left her group practice and started her own solo practice. And she was so excited about the venture and she was typing furiously. You could just tell because there were so many typos. Mm-hmm. You could tell she just couldn't say everything to explain. Like, how do you explain how you started a practice on yeah. a Facebook post? You just can't, right? So I thought, gosh, if I had people on like that who don't have the room to express and explain what they've been going through, In podcast form, I would love to listen to that. I've searched everywhere on iTunes and I could not find anything that was like what I was looking for. So as I was sitting there thinking about it more and more about how I wish there was a podcast out there, sometimes when you think of that, you are like, well, why don't you do it? (laughs) (laughs) You start getting that little voice in your head. You're like, well, if it doesn't exist, maybe you should do it. So anyway, that's how it started.
0: Well, that sounds great. I mean, that makes perfect sense. So essentially, you were inspired by the Physician Moms group, essentially just like wanting to interview them.
1: Yeah, just all the amazing women that were on there and expressing what they were going to. And um, there's another group called Women Physicians Entrepreneurs. And that group was amazing also to basically highlight all the interesting things that women were doing out there in medicine. So I think between those two groups, that was really inspiring to kind of put together a podcast and help bring these stories out and share those stories with everybody else.
0: Yeah, I've listened to several of those stories and they've been a help for me to understand the medical world. Well, I also heard that you have a new podcast coming out called Hippocratic Holidays. Could you tell me a little more about that and what that's about?
1: (laughs) Yeah, the Hippocratic Holiday is a new podcast that I just launched a few weeks ago. And it's a podcast that focuses on physician and physician families trips and travels and adventures. Again, I was searching the podcast world and could not find a podcast that I wanted to listen to about traveling to different places you know there's a lot of podcasts out there for travel but sometimes they're a little bit in a niche that I don't belong to like digital nomads you know those folks that are traveling mm-hmm. the world and and working from their computer and they're just traveling for a year at a time that kind yeah. of podcast is pretty popular out there and obviously as physicians Most of us can't do that. There are a few out there who've been creative and are able to do that, but most can't do that sort of thing or even take a trip longer than a week because we just can't get the vacation time or be away that long. So I wanted to create a podcast that focused kind of on those problems. I mean, the problems of just having four weeks vacation or six weeks vacation, you know, the problems of sometimes our vacation is integrated with our CME conferences, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the problems of traveling with kids or, you know, having limited time or being a resident for so long and not having the chance to get out and explore the world while all of our friends are going out and traveling. And finally, you know, when we're in our 30s and our early 40s, we're finally getting our passport renewed and, and getting out there and traveling. So that's kind of where I'm at right now is I'm just getting out there with my my daughter and my husband and traveling the world and seeing, you know, all those places that I studied abroad at when I was an undergrad, but haven't mm-hmm. been back to. Sure, so that's kind of the stories I wanted to focus on and highlight. And I think everybody has a store of a good trip, so it's sure. it's been really fun,
0: so basically interviewing people about meaningful time off they've taken in order to inspire other people to use their vacation time wisely and meaningfully, I guess,
1: yeah, I think so. Just basically, whenever I'm researching for a trip, I want to find all the information I can about it, like sure. A couple of years ago, this was about three years ago now, I went to Hawaii with some friends, first time I'd been there, and I was searching for podcasts just because I I needed to to walk on the treadmill, (laughs) and I I wanted to use my time wisely, so I was trying to research traveling to Maui and the Big Island, and I really had a hard time finding podcasts about that, which is kind of funny, Mm. because if you at all know the Disney travel podcast world, there are so many podcasts for travel to Disney. There's hmm. 10, 15, 20 maybe. So if you were traveling to Walt Disney World, for example, there is a lot of choices. But interesting. at least three years ago when I was looking for podcasts for Hawaii, I had a really hard time and I thought that was weird. So, you know, why not? I'll make it. Make I'll make own. one myself. Yeah, exactly.
0: I've never delved into that Disney travel podcast. I guess I haven't yeah. been in a while. I need to get like a kid or something that way.
1: Get a kid. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Be more inspired to go back to Disneyland. <laughs> Speaking of traveling, maybe we should transition over and talk a little bit about locums. So, a lot of listeners of our podcast are medical students and they may have heard or, I guess, seen the term locum tenens around. Could you maybe just give an idea of what it is for our listeners who may not be aware?
1: Yeah. Locum tenens is basically what Physicians call temp jobs, temporary jobs. In the nursing world, they tend to call them travelers from what I've Mm -hmm. heard. So you might have heard that term if you've worked in medicine. The nurses call them travelers. We call them locum tenens. There are agencies that help you find these jobs. And it's almost like a temp agency. So when a department or a medical group or a physician needs some help at short notice, they can call our locum tenens agency and make a request. And of course, you have to go through the state licensing and credentialing and things like that. So there's, it's not super quick. It's like, you know, a okay. two to three month process. But relatively quickly, there are people who can come in and help out departments when there's a need for staffing.
0: Okay. So uh, you mentioned something that I was going to ask later, but I want to delve into a little bit right now. What types of groups are typically getting locums doctors? Is it like small groups, big groups?
1: Yeah, all the above. Basically all those, because sometimes there's a solo practitioner out there who needs to go on maternity leave.
0: Sure. Sometimes
1: there's, yeah, just a doctor who's out because of some family medical emergency. A lot of times I think it is a little bit more of the hospital groups who tend to hire the locum tenens. It is a little expensive to hire locum tenens. You do have to pay. Yeah more for the locum tenens doctors. Basically, we have to be compensated appropriately for the trouble that it is to go through to be a locum tenens doctor. I mean, we have to travel away from our home. We have to fly to work, basically, stay in a hotel often if you don't have a local job. And also we're available and we also don't have job security. So, you know, these are the little like the kind of the trade-offs that you have when you're a locum tenens doctor. You get paid a little bit more than you might have if you had a permanent job at home. But then again, Many locum tenens aren't working full-time, and they can't because if you're like me, I travel across the country to work two weeks a month. So, yeah, so anyway, it's a little expensive for the departments and the doctors to pay for locum tenens, especially if you're going through an agency. Of course, if there's a third party who's involved, they have to pay for their expenses, and so that kind of causes the price to be a little expensive, you know, I mentioned that I'm going through an agency, but there are locum tenants who work independently and they end up setting up their own jobs with either independent groups or sometimes even hospital systems. So in those cases, that can make it more affordable for the hospital or for the doctor if you set it up without having that third party, the agency who has to take a commission off the top. So.
0: Oh, interesting. So people they can just decide they want to work in a temporary assignment and just kind of contact hospitals and see if they're looking for anyone to fill those positions?
1: Yeah, sometimes Hmm. that works out. Yeah, exactly. I know a number of people who do it that way. In my specialty, I'm pediatric gastroenterology. It's kind of a niche specialty. I've tried reaching out to hospitals. A lot of times they are larger hospitals. Those hospital systems tend to have a relationship with a locum tenens agency, and they're more used to going through the agency. So Mm, when I've... Reached out to them, they were a little confused about how that works. I found it to work a little bit better if you know people personally. So I've known of people who have gone and worked for a practice because they're a friend of a friend or a Mm -hmm. colleague, or they kind of knew that they had a need and they kind of knew this person was working in this field. So basically, they made the arrangement between the two of them. So, yeah.
0: Okay. I guess that does kind of open up a little bit of conversation about the agencies themselves. So, Like you said, they obviously are facilitating the contract between you and the hospital. Do most physicians, do they only go with one agency and they kind of work for that agency? Are you more like hiring the agency to look for you or how does that work exactly?
1: Yeah, you're kind of hiring the agency to look for you. Yeah. Okay. So it's in a person's best interest to have multiple agencies looking for jobs for you. There's a number of large companies that are out there that do a really good job of covering a lot of the subspecialties and having a lot of access to jobs. I think some of the larger ones might have more access to the larger hospital systems, for example. I've had success myself that way. Yeah, there's a, the National Association of Locum Tenants Organizations, or NALTO, is the national organization of locum tenants. Organizations, as I just mentioned. So basically, those are the agencies. And uh, you want to definitely work with a locum tens agency that is a member of NALTO. They have Mm -hmm. basically an ethical commitment amongst themselves to not snipe each other's physicians, basically, like steal them for another job. To a certain extent, it keeps these agencies a little bit honest. However, they are a business, and at times they do work for their interests and not the doctor's interest or the hospital's interest for that matter. You know, they're out there you know, just, just trying Making to money. make money. Yeah, exactly. So a physician and a hospital or a practice that's using a locum tenens agency really needs to do the research and kind of, you know, know who they're working with and make sure that you're always watching out for yourself.
0: Okay. That makes a lot of sense. When you make the temporary position with the hospital you're going to be working at, are you typically offered a contract through the hospital or is it like through the agency? does the agency negotiate a contract for you and then just kind of give you, money? Or are you like actually like signing contracts at the hospital? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um Actually, it's with the agency. So the agency okay. makes the arrangement. A lot of times I've told them what my terms are, how much money I want to make a day. It's pretty standard to have uh, medical malpractice covered with the contract. Travel's covered. So the hotel, the car rental, the airplane is covered generally. It doesn't have to, but it's pretty common that it is. So that stuff is all included. But that's basically... It. Malpractice and travel is the main thing and then your pay. But otherwise, you're 1099. So you're independent contractors, what that means. You mm-hmm. basically have to pay your own income taxes. So they're not collecting your income tax for you. They're not collecting Social Security for you. You have to do that separate. So you have to keep that in mind that the daily rate that they're going to give you for that job does not include the taxes. So you have to do that math and make sure that you're getting paid what you expect to get paid because you're gonna have to pay taxes at the end. You tell the locum tenants company what you're looking for, how much you want to be paid, what should be included, all that stuff. And then you make a mutual agreement that you will be what they call presented to the hospitals that are out there. So the process of presenting is basically the locum attendance company takes a stack of CVs, including yours, if you've chosen to be presented to this hospital, and then the hospital gets a stack of CVs to pick from. So if they only have need for one doctor, they may have a couple that are presented to them and they can kind of look through and see who might be the best fit, depending on the terms. So, you know, like I often say, I only want to work two weeks a month. Someone else might say I'm available one week a month. Some people might say I'm I'm available four weeks. So okay. the hospital might say... Great, four weeks a month is awesome. That's what we need. We'll take you over someone who's only has one week a month. Just as an example, it just depends on the need of, of the facility. Once you're presented and you're chosen by the hospital, then you make the arrangement with the locum tenens company to fulfill that commitment.
0: Okay.
1: And like I said, it's a temp job. Usually the contracts most commonly are a 30-day contract. So I have an obligation that I will not cancel my assignment within 30 days of starting you know, or within 30 days okay. of it being scheduled. So if I break that, I am obligated, at least in the case of my locum tenants agency, and this is pretty common, I'm obligated to pay them my salary. So interesting. pretty tight, but you do have 30 days. If it's outside of 30 days, I could say, I'm not coming. I don't want to come. Or hmm. I can only come Monday, but I can't come Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I have the option to set my schedule how I want it and I could cancel at any time up to the 30 days. And likewise, the same for me, they could cancel me at any time as long as they give me the 30 day notice. And if they cancel within 30 days, they're obligated to pay me regardless if I come or not. Of course, if you're negotiating yourself with the hospital, you potentially have more flexibility. Of course, you know, they're taking a risk taking someone on kind of short notice and stuff so they don't want you to fall through either. So, you know, you have to have something probably in the contract makes sense that there's some mutual agreement that you're going to fulfill the obligation. But uh, yeah, I know of some people who have set up their own jobs, it is a little bit more flexible because they're negotiating directly with the director of the department, for example. And so mm-hmm. they feel a little bit more comfortable with direct negotiations like that.
0: Okay. And so I guess the contract would end whenever the hospital gets a permanent person in that position, or is it possible to just continue almost indefinitely?
1: Yeah. Both of those things could happen. Like I said, at any time they could cancel you. So if they did hire someone, you know, your job's done there and that's fine. That's kind of how the job works. I have known people who have gone on to do long-term locums. Sometimes they stay with the agency and just continue being paid under the terms of just like a per diem type of relationship. But sometimes if the hospital system really likes you and they really want you to be a permanent doctor, even if you don't live in the area, they may buy out your locum tenens contract. So if you're working with an agency, the hospital would have to, like I said, buy it out. So there's a fee that it costs to basically acquire Mm -hmm. that physician because, of course, the locum tenens agency then is losing their commission because they get paid. Every day I work, they get paid. Yeah, for sure. I've heard of people being bought out and staying on as a long-term tenants and even people who have bought condos in the area where they work because now they're working with the hospital directly. Okay. They may have a contract yeah. that is almost like a regular permanent doctor contract with, you know, instead of being like, I'm going to work four days a week or five days a week, like a full-time doctor might, it still is a contract, but it's I'll work two weeks a month. And then you may get the same benefits that the other doctors do in your facility. The sky's the limit really. They could hire you to do anything. And you really can negotiate anything if it's a mutually agreeable situation. And like I said, some people sure. have bought condos in the area to make it a little bit more comfortable for them. And they've worked there for years doing it like that.
0: Okay. I mean, You mentioned benefits. Can we go talk about that a little bit? So you said it's a 1099 position, so there's not the W-2 perks, but does that include things like retirement accounts? And I guess definitely it doesn't include health insurance. How do they manage that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So independent contractors do not have access to an an employer 401k. But since we're working for ourselves, so essentially I am my own company. I'm basically my own company. (laughs)
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You can set up what they call a solo 401k. And so in that case, you can contribute the 19,000 or whatever it is for that year as an employee, which is what usually people do for a 401k. That's the max that you can contribute. And then I can actually set my own essentially almost like my own match, my own contribution as my employer, Mm. not only am I an employee, I'm an employer for myself. That makes sense. (laughs) So I am my own employee for my own business. So then I can contribute up to 56,000 because there's a a calculator to calculate how much you're allowed to contribute to an employee's retirement. But if you're working a fair amount of hours as a physician, you're well over that limit. So I can contribute up to 56,000 or whatever the annual limit Mm -hmm. is that year towards my solo 401k. And that's even better than my, when I was in private practice, that's better than what I got as a 401k through my private practice. So it's a better deal. Okay. So there's options like that, but yeah, no health insurance. That's kind of a bummer. That's health insurance is very expensive. So
0: yeah. I assume most people probably get that from like healthcare.gov or something like that.
1: Yeah. It's always a big discussion for people who are independent contractors. Like where's the best place to get health insurance and how to do it. And I'm not savvy about that because My husband's a physician and he works with a medical system, so I get really great insurance through his hospital. So I'm a little spoiled, but yeah.
0: No, I mean that, honestly, that's a great consideration. If you do have access to like a spouse's medical insurance, that makes this even more lucrative, I guess, in a certain way. Yeah, it Uh, does
1: because it's so expensive otherwise. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, so you did mention that before you were working in private practice and then you obviously transitioned to this. What was like the impetus for that transition?
1: Yeah, I was working in private practice, and basically at the time that I left my group, it just wasn't the best place for me to grow as a physician, and so I decided to kind of step out and, and basically leave the group. And in my kind of niche specialty, there's not a lot of jobs always everywhere, so in my town, there wasn't an easy place for me to just transfer mm-hmm. to to work, and also I had a one-year non-compete, so I couldn't technically practice in town for that year. So I actually found out about locum tenens through my podcast. So I had a guest who mm. I had on who talked about it, Shree Wiggins. She's a PM&R doctor and she's been on the podcast a number of times. She's amazing. Basically, I had her on as a guest and she explained locum tenens to me, just like I'm doing to you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, that actually sounds like something I could do and a great way to transition out of my private practice into something else, whatever the next thing was. And so, yeah, that's how I got the idea, how I was able to take the step away from my private practice. I still have a lot of student loans still working on those. I couldn't just, you know, quit and sit home for a year. I had to do something for someone who is in that kind of spot. Locum tens is a great option. For-
0: yeah. Like in between jobs, essentially. In right. Between jobs. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you mentioned that you couldn't practice in your hometown because of the non-compete. So essentially you decided that you were going to go elsewhere. How did you pick where else you wanted to go?
1: Yeah, I called the different agencies. And like you said, you can work with a number of different agencies, and it's good to do that because some agencies will have different jobs. So calling around and and seeing what's available is good. It is tough because when you call these agencies, they are so, like, they salivate, you know. They they make so much money off of this that those recruiters Mm -hmm. are really eager to get your phone number. They're really eager to get your email. I almost, you know, recommend getting, you know, one of those Google phone numbers that's kind of like a throwaway phone Uh, number. Um, or a throwaway Smart email idea. just for mm, this. Okay, because, yeah. of course, you have to communicate with these folks and talk back and forth. So you have to give some sort of contact information, but they will abuse it, I will say, sadly.
0: No, that makes sense. So you contacted the agency and you said, I want to do locums. What kind of guidelines did you give them? Did you want to go in the same state where you currently practice or were you looking to like travel across the country? Or how did you decide that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I was definitely open to anywhere. One of the limitations for doing locums is the state license. So Mm. every state is a little bit different in how they do their licensing. Some are super easy to get a state license. Some, like Texas, is notoriously hard to get a license in. California used to be hard. It still is decently hard. It's not as hard as people think it is, actually. You know, Those are two of the states. New York is another one. Pennsylvania is another one where it can be difficult to get a state license quickly. So uh, sometimes the locum tenants agencies will find it favorable if you already have a state license in a place that needs a job. So once you're a locum tenants doc, you actually start collecting state licenses. Basically, it makes you a little Hmm. bit more valuable because that's one hoop that you don't have to jump through as far as credentialing. If you already have your state license, then it's a little bit faster to get you in a job. But I was open to go anywhere. And at the time, I only had a Colorado medical license. And in fact, the first job that I took was in Missouri, which is where I did my fellowship. And I used to have a license there. But of course, I left Missouri. I was working in Colorado. I didn't need the license. So I just let it lapse. You know, I canceled it and I didn't need it. But now I'm realizing it's not a bad idea to kind of keep your licenses going. I mean, there's a pro and con. I didn't know I was going to be doing this three years out. But it almost is nice, especially if you live in one of those states where it's difficult to get. If you live in Texas, keep your license. Okay. Even if you move out, <laughs> okay. it's so hard to get that one.
0: It's enough.
1: Cause you just never know. I mean, sometimes something might happen and you might need to get a job quick. The more state licenses you have, the easier it is to employ you. That said, every state has requirements that you have to keep up to keep license and you have to pay the licensing fee
0: mm-hmm. often
1: annually. Okay. So it's a tough call. It's a tough call, but I do recommend that people keep your license, especially if you're from a state that's difficult to renew. In Missouri, it was super easy, so it ended up not being a big deal. But now I have, I don't know, maybe five
0: state okay. licenses now. So, sure. yeah. So, I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like, If you practice in a place and you realize that you like the area, you like the city, you like the, the state, it's worth keeping your license in case you ever want to move back because it's yeah. easier than having to reapply.
1: Yeah, and I would say... States like California and Texas that are notoriously hard to get a state license going, sometimes they won't consider you for a job there unless you have that state license already because they've been Mm -hmm. burned quite a few times where they bring on a doctor all set, you know, expecting to start in like four months. And then the state licensing takes much longer and then they can't fulfill that obligation that they gave to the hospital saying that we'll have a doctor ready for you in four months. So California and Texas are great because also they're huge states. There's a lot of jobs, especially in California. Uh, The California license is really valuable.
0: I guess that makes a lot of sense. One thing I was thinking about as you were talking about this earlier is, so the Locums company usually pays for your travel and it pays for your rental car and it pays for your hotel. Is that part of the contract that you make that you want to live in a certain place or at a certain hotel or drive the mid-level sedan versus the compact? Is that something you negotiate?
1: they're pretty nice about it. So actually they basically in their contracts say that they use residence in or equivalent. Right. I've had no problem staying in residence ins. And I think for this kind of like two week stay, a residence in is perfect for what I do. So I don't need anything fancier than that. And, and also if you're with a large agency, they have contracts with Marriott and Hilton and stuff. So I think they get mm-hmm. a pretty good deal okay. on the hotel room. And then same with the rental car agencies. They didn't care what rental car agency I used. I told them who I wanted to use and they just use national and it's great. And they let me, Get whatever car I want. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure. So, I think that's pretty cheap for them because they have contracts and stuff, so they really don't care. Airline wise, they ask what airline I like to fly and they try to accommodate my requests and stuff. I've had a difficult time with them. They won't cover first class, <laughs> they said that <laughs> specifically in their contract. But if you were the only doctor they could find for that job and you said, I only will go if you fly me first class. I mean, odds are they'll do it because it's worth sure. it to them. But okay. when there's a lot of people out there and, and there's a lot of jobs available, they do fight you on the first class thing. And that's, you know, to a certain extent, that's that's OK. But I've contemplated that when, you know, thinking about am I going to go to Alaska? It's such a long flight. Like, I don't know if I want to do it. There's other jobs I could take. But if they want to take me. I would prefer to have a first class because it's a six hour flight, you know? So, oh, absolutely. and you if wouldn't. I'm flying back yeah. and forth all the time, I have to think about my mental health. I cannot do six hours in economy four times a month, like four legs a month. I couldn't mm-hmm. do that. Okay. So I sure. wouldn't take the job unless they gave me some accommodations for that because that would be painful and there's other places I could work. So <laughs> <laughs> sure. as an example.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess that brings me to think about, are there any specific Aspects of the contract that are special to locums that you negotiate versus a normal contract
1: I think it's just the daily rate Um, yeah, actually yeah the daily rate the pay that's that's what's a little bit different It's a per diem type of job. So each day that you work you get paid a certain rate Commonly people get paid for like an eight-hour workday. That's super common That's actually not common in the rest of the medical world, right? We don't get paid hourly (laughs) So I get paid a flat fee for working eight hours If I work six hours that day because there just wasn't a lot of work to do, I still get paid for eight hours. I do recommend that people set up their contract like that. A number of colleagues in locum tenens that I've met have said sometimes they've gone off to a site to work, and they're short-staffed. Basically, their department's a hot mess in some cases, and they've gone – And they've only seen two patients in the day. Mm. So that's not the doctor's fault. That's the site's fault for not, you know, utilizing our time appropriately. Like we are there for eight hours. So in cases like that, I definitely recommend setting up an eight hour schedule. I've seen some contracts come. They're asking for four hours minimum or something. But I I don't like that. If I'm there working, I want to work a full day. I mean, I'm traveling away from home. I don't want to get paid for four hours and then go sit in my hotel for four hours in a work day. I want to be there to help them and to work. So I think it's better to do an eight-hour flat pay and same for call days. So on some types of specialties, you know, you're on call, you're on pager call. Sometimes the locum tenens will advertise that they'll pay you for each hour that you have contact hours. Well, the thing is, is that I'm traveling across the country and I'm sitting in a hotel room. I'm not able to do much else other than just sit around waiting for something to happen, right? I want to get paid for that time. And I'm valuable to them to be, you know, available at a moment's notice to do any kind of like emergency procedure or whatever. So I've negotiated to get paid on the weekends or when I'm on call eight hours, regardless of how much work I do, because a number of these places are smaller locations, less busy locations. And I've had days where I felt like I was on house arrest because I was just in the hotel all day, (laughs) you know, just waiting for something to happen. I didn't have any patients to round on. I didn't have any emergencies that happened, but I was there ready and and waiting. So basically my time's valuable. And if I'm going to be there in a foreign town where I don't have anything to do, I want to be paid for that. So I recommend that people negotiate for that too.
0: That makes a lot of sense. It sounds like depending on the specialty, you're going to have different responsibilities, obviously. Sometimes as a pediatric GI, you're working outpatient. Sometimes you're working inpatient or doing like scopes or whatever kind of procedures you're doing. When you talk with a hospital, are you negotiating exactly what you're doing on different days or do you just kind of say, send me wherever you need me?
1: Yeah, well, whenever the facility puts out a request to the agency, the agency reaches out to me and say, hey, I got this job in Illinois and they need someone who can work outpatient, you know, seven days out of the month. And they often will say the average census is 10 patients. You know, you'll have dedicated scope time. They'll have a little bit of a description of what their needs Mm -hmm. are. So you could be like, oh, I'm not doing that. That sounds crazy. Or you can be like, oh, okay. That sounds like something that's up my alley. So usually it's kind of vague. And then also before you accept the position, there is usually a phone call between you and the department. So usually a physician that's in that department who can explain a little bit more what the job duties are expected to be. So you can get a little bit more information because, of course, the recruiters, they don't really understand what all this stuff means. And they're just <laughs> okay. reading off a form or whatever, sure. you know, it's pretty basic. But yeah, and to a certain extent, you could be like, well, I'm I'm interested in doing that. But but to a certain extent, you you can't really because... You know, this, this hospital has a very specific need. You don't really understand what their needs are. Yeah. I'm there to help them. So, whatever they ask me to do, I'm going to be available to do for them as long as it's within the rough outline of our contract. When I had my interview for the position I'm doing right now, the, the department chair was telling me, and he was like, Oh, you're going to see 20 patients, and it's, you know, it's a really busy practice and everything. And, and I was listening to this, and I was like, Oh my gosh, that's going to be a pain in the butt. But, you know, I'm away from home, I don't have a lot of the responsibilities at home honestly, I can do anything. That's fine. You know, it didn't sound like a very pleasant job, but you know, that's kind of what we do. We kind of move into jobs that maybe someone else doesn't want to do or whatever, just for a temporary time. And if you don't like it, you can always quit, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, but once I got here, they actually had amazing support. Maybe he wanted to make sure I was a tough, you know, (laughs) that I was a tough (laughs) doctor and I wasn't going to wuss out, I'm or whatever, but it was fine. And everywhere I've worked has been fine, has been absolutely fine.
0: Sure. Yeah. I'm sure they're probably like at least a little bit grateful to you because you're kind of swooping in and almost saving the day in a certain sense, right? Because they needed someone and you're here to fulfill it like pretty quickly. So that's that's pretty impressive, I guess.
1: Yeah, I would say the office staff definitely does that. They they know that we're <laughs> that we're in temporarily and that we're there to help them. So everybody's really thankful.
0: Sure. I mean, I guess speaking of being there like quickly and temporarily, there's probably a lot of orientation things that are difficult when you first show up. I mean, I'm a medical student, so. Every single rotation I do, every service, there's like a new thing, you know, every two weeks I'm with new people and learning new terms and things like that, new systems. So I guess I kind of empathize a little bit with how that must feel going into a clinic and having to figure out who Sally is and all the different little things that you have to know. How does that feel for you?
1: Yeah. Well, definitely, if you do locums, you have to be adaptable and flexible. Yeah. When we come in for orientation, it's really funny. Every hospital's had like maybe a half day orientation where some of that's also, you know, training for the EMR. And then they're like, okay, good luck. Have fun. (laughs) It's kind of like, okay. Um, yeah, you really, it is kind of an emergency situation and the hospital will put you through like this really quick orientation, but that is basically it. So yeah, you have to be really flexible. And likewise, when you start off in the practice, I always think of it, I'm a guest in their home. I am just a guest. So a lot of times there's a little bit of a cultural difference in management of patients or what service takes care of a certain patient or who does what. And I'm not there to change anything. I'm there just to serve, basically. I'm there to help them out and to keep the boat afloat. <laughs> and yeah. I've, I've definitely heard of locums who have not been that flexible and they have a hard time and they don't keep jobs if they're not flexible because they come in and they complain like, oh my gosh, this place is horrible. Oh my God, they're so disorganized and they can't get anything right and everything. If you were a permanent physician there, you'd be like, yeah, that's, it's probably true. But we're here to help them. And a lot of times the departments are working out complicated staffing situations and understaffed, and they're doing the best they can. So I'm a guest in their home. That's how I think of it.
0: Sure. Well, I'm kind of wrapping up with my questions now. I have a couple more things I do want to ask, though. One of the things that one of my co-hosts mentioned to me earlier is he was really curious how Locums changes for maybe like internal medicine versus general surgery. Do you have any insights about that or like what, you know, maybe how the contracts differ or how the experiences differ for the physicians?
1: Well, I mean, of course, if you're a general surgeon, often they're gonna have, you know, more 24 hour call maybe, um, versus internal medicine, which might have more shift work. Um, Although that might also be the case for some general surgery departments. I would say overall, we all get paid on a per diem basis. We usually get paid, like I said, for the eight hours. Sometimes there's callback time, which is overtime. If you work over eight hours, you should get an overtime pay for each hour that you work. Some places will pay a pager call. So if you're carrying the pager, they basically give you a couple hundred bucks as a thank you, I don't know, for for taking on the pager overnight. So that's maybe the difference if you're taking call versus not. But I think that's fairly similar between Gen Surgeon and internal medicine if you're taking call. So. It's sure. pretty similar, I would say. Okay.
0: Sounds good. And I guess one last thing that I was wondering about is, are you aware of any like new trends or the future things happening in locums that you think people should be aware of? I guess just as an insider, as someone who's actually doing it.
1: I would say one of the things I want to say about locum tenants is when I first started locums, I thought the only people who did locums were like screw-ups, people who <laughs> couldn't get a license in their state people who are fired from their job, people who didn't have good interpersonal skills. I don't know. I had that stereotype. I don't know if that stereotype still exists, but if it does, it's really not true. I mean, the people that I've met for the most part are people who are really amazing physicians and just are basically practicing medicine a little bit more creatively than people who are practicing traditionally. So I think that's a trend right now in locum tenens is people you know, basically who just want to be creative with, with their work and have a little bit of job flexibility. So yeah, yeah I that think that's one of, of the trends. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and, you know, talking about all these things. I think it's super useful. We may have mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but most medical students who are most of our listeners don't really get much experience with locums at all. Like you probably occasionally will get the opportunity to be in like an academic hospital, but even if you were you're not going to interact with any of the medical students typically because that teaching probably falls on the actual faculty, right?
1: Right. Often.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, you know, coming in and explaining everything.
1: Oh yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's fun to share what I do.
0: Yeah. And if anyone's ever interested in listening to your podcast, I'll put them out there. It's called Hippocratic Hustle, yep. which I'm sure you can find on most podcast apps or maybe just All go them. to the website.
1: Yeah, that's right. And Hippocratic Holiday, the new travel podcast. So both exactly. are available on uh, Apple Podcasts and wherever your favorite podcast is located.
0: thanks for listening to this episode. Subscribe to the podcast or follow us on social media to get notifications about new episodes. The views and opinions expressed by guests and hosts on this podcast are their own and do not represent the various community and professional organizations to which the speaker might belong. Thanks for listening and we'll be back with another episode next week.